y'all, do you ever wonder what science has to say about criminal behavior, how victims are chosen, or even what the public can do to make a difference? If so, then you will love Women in Crime. Women in Crime is where true crime meets criminology. Hosts Amy Schlossberg and Megan Sachs are both criminologists who have spent their entire careers studying and teaching about crime. And full disclosure, Amy and Megan have become two of my best true crime friends. They are amazing. And if you're familiar with my show and my Patreon, you will know I have them on often. They both have firsthand experience working with offenders and officials in the criminal justice system. And each episode, you will hear a new female-focused case or topic deconstructed by experts. They cover female criminals, victims, and the heroines of our justice system. You'll hear these women's stories, but you'll also learn what science can teach us about these crimes. Crime is different for women. Listen and learn why on Women and Crime. You can listen to Women in Crime now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's Women and Crime. Previously on Murder in Alliance. She had come to you saying she had pissed off the wrong person. She had so many secrets. It's like three phases that I know of her life. She was dating a cop. They said they thought she was pregnant and she probably tried to blackmail the daddy. I knew that she would tell people that she was pregnant and then ask for money for an abortion. That's how she would send money to Eric when he was in the joint. I think she was pregnant. She had a belly on her when I seen her. And she would shake them down and say, I'm going to tell your wife or something. She has some dark sides to her. I don't know how she kept everything straight. This is Murder and Alliance, an active investigation into who killed Avon Lane. I'm Maggie Freeling. Y'all, I am so excited for this episode. This is a special interview with Karen Smith, a retired major case detective with the Jacksonville Sheriff's Office. She conducted 500 death investigations and worked 20,000 other cases during her career. And I am so lucky that Karen joins me to look at the crime scene and give her opinion on who could have killed Yvonne and how. Karen also has a podcast called Shattered Souls, a forensic detective's diary, where she opens up her journals from her 11 years as a forensic detective in Jacksonville, Florida. And she talks about the nightmares, the emotions, the scares, and the breath-holding white-knuckle moments from the most haunting cases of her career. Season two of Shattered Souls will be out in September, and you can find Shattered Souls wherever you get your podcasts. So here we go. Karen brings to light so many things that had never been brought up about this crime scene before. We want to start by you just introducing yourself. Okay. Whenever you, are you ready? I'm ready. I'm Karen Smith. I am a lecturer at the University of Florida in the College of Pharmacy and Forensic Science. I'm a retired detective from the Jacksonville Sheriff's Office. And now I'm doing my own podcast. Yeah, so I wanted to ask you about Shattered Souls. Um, if you wanted to tell listeners just a little bit about it. I mean, it's fascinating. It's, it's about, you know, your life as a detective. 
Right. The season, season one is about six of my cases that I've broken down into 12 different episodes. And basically it's just how I did my forensic investigations, how I felt, how my coworkers and I sort of weeded our way through these cases, all the way through the adjudication process in the courtroom. There's a lot of 911 tapes, um, a covert vehicle uh, confession by one of the killers and a lot of different people that I interviewed and worked with. So it's it's kind of just a walkthrough of a forensic investigation six times over. And I have season two coming up. I can't talk too much about it, but I will tell you that it's a very, very old cold case. And it's gonna be a serialized podcast rather than having each episode be a different case. This is one long case and it's very, very close to home. And I'll leave it at that. Wow. Okay. That's exciting. It's funny that we both started podcasts doing like an episode a week, different, different cases. And now we've moved on to the serialized storytelling. Yeah. It, it was not something that I intended to do. Um, I was actually going to do a season two of my cases. And then this one was in the back of my head for a long, long time. And I thought, you know, what better platform than to bring it forth on my podcast? So that's what I decided to do. So I have brought you on to this case. You were recommended to me um, by Megan Sachs from Women in Crime. Megan is amazing. Yeah, I'm appreciated for that. (laughs) Yeah, I was like, do you know any like crime scene investigators that are really awesome and would help me with this? And she was like, oh, duh. So all I did was, you know, absolutely nothing about this case. So all I did was I sent you lab reports, the autopsy, crime scene photos and evidence photos, and you have poured through them. And that is all that you know is just the evidence in this case. That's right. And that was purposeful. Um, As... A crime scene reconstructionist, bloodstain pattern analyst, my job is to remain as objective as I possibly can. And, and when you learn things that you don't need to know quite yet, it can bias you in your investigatory look at a case file. So what I wanted to do is just get the crime scene photos because frankly, those are the most unbiased parts of a case. There are still some bias associated with it because you're only seeing what the person who took the photos was seeing but as far as a case file, I did not want to see what other investigators concluded. I didn't want to see any of that stuff because I didn't want that noise in my brain when I was going through the photos. So that's why I asked you to do that. Right. So, you know, you and I had a brief kind of pre-interview talk where you told me some of your first impressions of this. So why don't you go ahead and tell the listeners, you know, after you looked through all of this, what were some of your first impressions? (laughs) Some of my first impressions. Um, Well, the first thing that I looked at was positions of the victim, the bloodstains left behind because they're very telling and movement, if I could discern that, which I could. And sort of the, the fact that to me in the photos, there didn't seem to be any forced entry into the home, which as an investigator is really important. And um, the fact that I believe this was on the second floor of a house. So that tells me based on experience that the victim must have known who this was because there's no forced entry. And from the look of where this took place, it was near a table in a little offset kitchen dinette area. There's a pack of cigarettes and a glass, which tells me that the victim was comfortable enough to have a seat, have a smoke, 
have a drink. And, you know, when we look at bloodstain patterns, we don't just look at where they are. An important part of it is where they're not. So I was looking for areas called voids, areas where blood should be but isn't. And in this case, there was a void behind her chair. There's a big plant in the background and there's a mat on the floor and there's blood everywhere around that mat on the sliding glass door, which we'll talk about, and to her final, but behind her, there's very little. So when you have an area like that, it's an assumption on my part. That tells me that somebody or something was blocking blood from getting back there. So somehow, based on the injury patterns, based on the blood on the floor, based on the void patterns behind the chair where she was, it told me that the assailant, the perpetrator, was behind her, somehow got behind her in order to inflict this horrible, horrible injury to her, her neck. Um, so that was really my first impression, not, not to go into too much detail, but that's where I started. Okay. Yeah. I mean, just, just from that, I'm like, there's so many things I could say, but you know, something that, that the police did not mention in any of their reports or anything is that it does look like she was sitting at this table with somebody. The lighter is in the middle of the table as if they were passing it back and forth. Both chairs are pushed out. I mean, you noticed exactly what, you know, myself and Sue and other people have looked at this. It looks like she was sitting there with somebody. Right. And, and I can actually go a bit further on that to, to, to show a little bit more forensic, quote unquote, proof of that. The, the one thing that I really wish I had better photographs of, but the ones that, they, that you sent me will, will do for now, is it's an arterial spurt pattern. And it's on the sliding glass door. It's textbook. It's absolutely textbook of an arterial spurt. When somebody's neck is cut like that and the carotid artery is cut, pressure from the heart is going to send blood several feet, several feet. And that's what we see here. And the pattern starts just about where somebody would be in a seated position on that glass window. And it goes down. It, it has a very sharp pattern toward the floor. And then you look at the floor and you can see those patterns continue to her final resting place, which I'm estimating to be maybe no more than eight feet away. So she didn't get very far once that wound was inflicted. Um, so you're saying it's actually possible she was sitting in the chair? Either sitting in the chair or, or trying to get up, but she certainly, it, it doesn't seem to me to be consistent with someone fully standing where that arterial spurt starts on the window behind the chair. It seems like it's at a level that would be close to somebody either getting up or seated in that position. Okay. Yeah. So, so what else? I mean, when we first talked, you mentioned the puppies, you thought the puppies were really striking. Yeah. Well, when I started going through the photographs, I didn't start immediately with the end point of, of where she was. I didn't want to see that until later. I went through the exterior photos first. And I, I looked at the door. I was looking for forced entry. And that front bottom door, it looks like it had been opened and shut several times when the photographs were being taken. I thought, okay, well, that's weird. If there was forced entry, you would think that would be documented. Well, when they had the one photograph of the lock, there didn't seem to be 
any signs of forced entry. So that told me, okay, that's why they're photographing this to show negative evidence. There isn't any forced entry. Great. Then I progressed inside. And when I saw a, there was a crib in a corner and it was quite dirty, it wasn't, it wasn't something that a baby would be used for. And I thought, well, they have a dog. They have to have a dog. And I was thinking like it was a little poodle or a Shih Tzu or something like that. Then we go upstairs and I was looking at the photographs and through that sliding glass door, you can see in, in one photo, there's one puppy. They're little teeny things. They, they're no more than maybe eight or 10 weeks old. They're little. And then there's two of them in another photo. So when I did a follow-up call with you a few days ago, I asked you, where'd the puppies come from? Because to me, and this is really speculative, but to me, that may have been some kind of a ruse for the killer to use to get behind her. I cannot imagine, you know, as a cop, I, I always like to have, I never put my back to a door, even to this day. At restaurants, nowhere, I will not put my back to a door. So for someone to get behind you, the puppies are outside. Was it a ruse for this person to go, oh my God, cute little puppies and work his, I'm going to say his, work his way behind her to get into a position to inflict this injury. That's where my mind went. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. That's just what I thought. So I think, you know, just for listeners, and I told you this too, the interesting thing is, is that in her mother's interview with the police. She said she was there the day before the 31st, which was the day we believe she was murdered. Um, and there were four puppies. And in these photos, we only see two. So that is definitely curious. And it is not something the police um, made notes or investigated at all. So okay. it, the, the puppies are definitely interesting. It's just, it adds more questions than answers, honestly. Y'all, if you're like me, you probably feel like you're being followed around the internet. And so our new sponsor, IP Vanish VPN, is here to take back your privacy and help become anonymous on the internet. That sounds awesome to me. So what is IP Vanish? It is a virtual private network that helps you safely browse the internet. You can use a VPN on your computers, tablets, phones, even things like your Fire Stick when you're streaming media. When you use a VPN, all of your data is encrypted, what you're reading, what you're searching, what you're watching, whatever you are doing. And this is important because what you are doing is no one else's business but yours. Get an anonymous IP address. You can circumvent any online censorship. You get protection when using public Wi-Fi and you get 24-7 support. Go to ipvanish.com slash MIA to claim your 65% savings. They have plans starting at just $349 or $3149 a year. This is the time to sign up. The internet is becoming a scary place. With this discount and their current promotional offerings, you can get a VPN for 65% off their usual offering. IP Vanish is the best of the best, even rated 4.7 out of 5 on Trustpilot, and that's with more than 6,000 reviews. Remember, it's ipvanish.com slash MIA to get the deal and start protecting yourself online. You know, going through the photos again, you notice some things like you, you mentioned they were standing on the roof. Um, you brought that up to me and you were asking me about that. What was interesting to you about the roof? Right. So there was a ladder. There's an adjacent blue building to the right. If you're facing the house where the crime happened to the right, there's a blue building and they were climbing a ladder to the roof. To me, that meant they were looking for a weapon. 
that was the first thing that I thought was somebody tossed a weapon on the roof. They were doing a search up there to find, you know, at that point, I didn't know if it was a knife, a gun. I didn't know because I hadn't looked at the interior yet or the coroner report. So I thought knife, gun, something up on the roof. Yeah. So it's also interesting. They, they did not, um, there, you know, there was no reports on, we searched the roof for X, Y, and Z. So I don't know why they're on the roof. I did notice that in the photos, but didn't think anything of it really. So it is interesting. There's a, there's a rule in crime scene investigations and homicide investigations, any investigation, if you don't articulate it, it never happened. So, you know, when you go to court and somebody puts this photograph up and you look at it and go and a defense attorney for say would say why were you going up this ladder and you say well we were looking for a weapon on the roof well you didn't write it in your report well no we didn't think it was important because we didn't find anything well even if you don't find anything you always articulate that so that the question about the photograph is always answered right so there's lots of questions <laughs> from these photographs as well besides that I think that one's probably the most benign. Um, you know, you noticed there's a purse in some photos and not in some photos. Right. The kitchen. I was going through the photograph sequentially of the kitchen. And, you know, you can kind of, when you have experience in this and you had a camera in your hands for hundreds and hundreds of thousands of photos, you can sort of follow along the path of the person taking the pictures. And that's exactly what I did. Okay, they move here next. Sure enough, they move there next. So I could kind of follow along the path and put the kitchen together with different photographs. And in several of them, there's the sink straight ahead and the kitchen uh, counters are, are fairly clean. There's regular implements and stuff, but in a couple of photographs, there's a big black purse or a bag sitting there. Mm-hmm. I thought, Where, where'd that come from? It didn't look like a technician's bag. It didn't look like a crime scene bag. And there are several photos with crime scene equipment in it. Listen, I've I've been guilty. I've accidentally done that myself. So I'm not going to hammer them on that. But this looked like a woman's purse, a big black handbag purse. What was in it? Where did it come from? Who put it there? Why is that not photographed in toto? Was a wallet taken? Was anything taken from this purse? Did, Did anyone go through it? That was a huge question in my mind. So, um, the, the lab tech is a, is a woman. So yes, it is possible. She put her or the, or the crime scene analyst is a woman. So it's possible. She put her purse there. I would think and hope that if it was Yvonne's purse, the the murder victim, it would have been bagged as evidence, but there is another explanation for this purse. Do you want to hear what this might be? Yes. The chief of police brought a date and allowed her into the crime scene. What? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you heard me. Unless I broke out, you, you heard me. Time out. Time out. You're talking about a civilian? Yes. Being allowed in a, in a murder scene? Yes. It's unclear Why? how far she made it into the scene, but we- It do- doesn't matter. I don't care if she crossed the threshold of the living room. That is unconscionable. I'm sorry, No, no, you do not show off a crime scene to your date. This is someone's life. This is a victim of a heinous murder. That is first and foremost, not showing someone what a murderer looks like because for whatever reason, no, 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 that, that actually makes me very angry. 
Yeah, so that's that's a possible explanation for the purse. There was a civilian female on the scene. Um, so room yeah. that one for a minute. Wow, wow. You know, okay. So <laughs> we would have civilian ride-alongs. They were interns, right? Mm-hmm. But if I had a scene like this, they would sit in my van. There is no way on God's green earth they would set foot into my crime scene ever. I don't care, internship, undergrad, what you're studying. My job is to solve cases. My job is not to train someone who is studying to be a crime scene investigator at the expense of a crime scene, period, ever, ever. Outdoor crime scenes, a little different. Indoor in a private residence, no way, no. That that really incenses me. I'm not going to lie. That makes me very mad. Yeah, his the only response he ever gave was um, it could have been handled better. Was his response when a, a seasoned investigative journalist asked him, you know, what what the deal was. Um, so that would be Chief Dordia. So wow. the other thing that had never been mentioned in any reports, um, and again, this is all fresh to you is the bleach and the gloves. There was no mention of it seeming like someone was cleaning up or cleaning. There was no mention of that. Okay. Yeah, that it did stick out in my mind until until I went upstairs and saw the crime scene and saw this hasn't been cleaned up. So I thought, okay, has somebody mopped the kitchen floor recently? Were they cleaning dishes? Were they cleaning the dog bowls? I don't know. Um, it still should have been documented. The bleach bottle should have certainly been collected and processed. The gloves should have been collected and processed. Even if you don't quote unquote think they have nothing to do with the crime scene, you don't know. That's not a judgment for you to make. That's where forensics comes into play. You send it off, you have it processed. Nothing comes back. Okay, fine. No harm, no foul. So what? You've collected something that was benign, but you still have to take that chance and find out. Yeah, and there's a lot of evidence like that that we see in these photos, and I'm just going to mention a few. And, um, you know, we we talked about this toothbrush. You know, I was going back through the photos. It is completely unclear where this toothbrush was found. You know, is it near the home? We just see a photo of a toothbrush on grass, but that is not an evidence, and they clearly thought to photograph it. Right, and that's another... Okay, I did actually find out where it was. There's a um, a wood planter bucket that's to the left of the front door and the toothbrush looks to be a few feet in front of that. Um, you can see it in another photo and then there's the close-up of the toothbrush. But again, if you're going to document something like that, whether or not it has something to do with the crime scene, it doesn't matter. If you photograph it, you document it and you collect it. Just open doors for questions like this. And the toothbrush, I mean, you know, talk about a plethora of DNA. I mean, if that came back to a stranger or, you know, why is your toothbrush at this house where there is a murder? You know, that is just shocking to me that the toothbrush, and now you're telling me it's that close to the door of the house? That's what it looked like to me. Uh, If you go back and look at that brown planter, you can sort of see the patch of grass where the toothbrush is. You can see a little blue glint and it looks to me to be the toothbrush. Oh, there, there it is. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. That is like right by the front door. Okay. Yeah. Maybe a few feet away. That's a conundrum. I have no idea. And without it, you know, we'll, we'll never know. So, so this is something that you wouldn't know, but they mention in an interview, a bunch of 
marijuana that was found at the scene. Well, as you know, there is no documentation of that at all. So my question is, you're talking about this marijuana found at the scene. Where is that? How much, how much was it? They said it was a small amount. Okay. So like personal use amount, not like pounds. No, no, no. Personal (laughs) use. The reason I asked is, you know, okay, so drug burn, but if it's only personal use, then it's certainly not a drug burn. Okay. No, but my question is, where is it? Yeah. Where is it? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's definitely something you'd want to document. I mean, you know, when, when you go through a scene, especially one like this, where it's a whodunit, right? And at that point, they, they, I'm assuming pretty quickly, since the mom was the one that called in, they, they had a, a tentative idea of the victim, which is very helpful. But when you have a whodunit murder, everything gets sort of amplified tenfold because now everything becomes important. Nothing is thrown aside because you don't know this person's habits. You don't know what's normal in the house. It's not my house. I don't know what's quote unquote normal. So you start looking for little things. Are are things overturned? Is there a sign of a struggle? Is there anything downstairs that's been rifled through that you can tell drawers or, or, you know, any electronics that are missing? All of those things that come into play when you have experience and you've seen this before all of that comes back and you start looking for these little clues. And if you're going to photograph something, you need to document it and collect it just to dispel any, A, to dispel any talk like this, but also to answer some questions if that piece of evidence can answer them. It's not my job to judge it. My job is to collect it, document it, and make sure it goes through the proper process. Yeah, you're ruffling my feathers today. Um, So this photo of the child, you also brought it up. And this brings me to staging. I want to talk about, you know, if you saw any signs of staging at this crime scene. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. Minor, no cleanup. But when you see a full-size television on a body, when you see a, a desk that the television was apparently on over halfway overturned and leaning against um, a little baby toddler scooty thing. So that's one thing. And then there's this teeny little photograph between her legs. And it's, uh, it looks like a young boy in a small little gold frame. And if you look at the bloodstain patterns under that and around that, it doesn't match with the photo. The photo, granted, the photographs of the crime scene aren't great. We're dealing with film that's been transferred onto online. So the photos aren't that great. But when I zoomed in, I didn't see any bloodstains consistent with the area around it on that picture, which made me wonder if it was placed there after the fact. So that photo, what first thing about it is, we have no idea who that child is. Really? Yes. Sue. Oh, wow. One of the people who's been working on this case for 22 years has asked, you know, family members, nobody knows who that child is. But in the kitchen, there is another photo of that child too. Um, Same photo, but a little larger. But so there's that. And then, yeah, I would say it looks like somebody placed that there between her legs. It like as some sort of kind of like a kind of like a fuck you. Like when I tell you what happened with this case, it kind of seems like a fuck you um, to me. A totem or a, uh, yeah. I mean, you, you know, when you go into crime scenes like this, you try to go into the motivations of the person who did it, right? You try to get into their psychology. And sometimes things just don't make sense. But that's 
where you go into the reconstruction and sequencing of things. And that photo stuck out to me. It's very small. There may, may be a tiny blood stain on it that I just can't see, but it did seem to be placed. It did seem to be put there for some kind of purpose based on the stains around it. Uh, so this blue blanket, because I never paid too much attention to it. So I'm looking at the photos and I can't really tell. It looks like in crime scene photo, what's the number of this? 172. Okay. It looks like it's in a completely different position than the photos before it. Yeah, there's a lot of movement in this scene. A lot of um, just piecemeal photos that really didn't make sense. When you look at the sofa in photo 164, you can see there's a brown pillow. With, there's a swipe mark underneath that near the knee where somebody may have brushed against it. And then at the far end where the blue blanket is, there's a really large uh Blood stain could be arterial spurting. It could be projected blood if, if she was spitting blood up. But what struck me is that how did that happen if she's down on the floor at that point? And I know that she was. Where's the hand grip? Where's, where's the point where she grabbed that sheet, that blue blanket? And why is there an ashtray? You got the brown blanket, blood stain, blue blanket, ashtray. Mm-hmm. Well, the ashtray is literally right above those bloodstains. So how did that happen? How did that just stay there? And it wasn't moved. Moved, yeah. So how, so how could you explain that blood splurt? Because, you know, when you have an absorbent fabric like that, it, it, it sort of models a lot of the details. It could be an arterial spurt from her neck. It could be a projected uh, vomiting sort of thing if she's got she definitely had blood in her in her throat and in her windpipe and you know that could have come out in a projected way from her mouth or her nose onto the couch it's hard to tell it's really hard to tell with with the photographs as I have them I am a terrible sleeper between temperatures not being right, things on my mind, work, living in a city where neighbors are partying, blasting reggaeton all day. It is really difficult to sleep. But when you have a purple mattress, you can sleep cool and comfortable no matter what the world throws at you. And that's because only purple mattresses have the grid. It is a unique ventilated design which allows air to flow through to help you sleep cool even when it feels like a thousand degrees out. I've actually been obsessed with purple for a very long time. And really what sold me on the purple mattress was the egg test. If you don't know about this, just Google it. The grid design makes me feel like I am floating. There is no pressure on my body. The grid bounces back as you move and shift so you never get that I'm stuck feeling you do with memory foam. You can try your purple mattress risk-free with free shipping and returns. Financing is available too. Purple is comfort reinvented. And right now you'll get 10% off any order of $200 or more. Go to purple.com slash MIA and use promo code MIA. That's purple.com slash MIA, promo code MIA for 10% off any order $200 or more. Purple.com slash MIA, promo code MIA. Terms apply. So now I'm going to ask you like a very big hypothetical and I want everyone to know it's hypothetical, but you know, if you were going to make an assessment and, and try and say, you know, this is how I think this murder happened with this kind of weapon. Can you give us, you know, your scenario? 
based on experience. Um, yeah, this is completely hypothetical, completely not objective, but uh, she knew whoever this was allowed them in. They were either conversing or talking in that little kitchenette. She was smoking a cigarette. She was drinking water. Um, I don't know if she was being threatened. I don't know if it was a nervous smoking thing, if there was some kind of trouble or if it was a casual conversation. I don't know. Somehow the assailant got behind her. I, I don't know how that happened. Um, pulled her hair back and pulled a knife or a razor blade or something extraordinarily sharp across her neck from left to right, nearly cut her head off with that one stroke. She falls on the floor. She's crawling away. Um, you can see some blood on the bottom of, uh, I believe it's her left foot. She's pushing her way across the floor. It's actually really gruesome. She makes it maybe five or eight feet and collapses. There's no blood stains on the back of her shirt. There's no blood stains on the back of her shorts. Everything is concentrated on the upper part of her body, on her sleeves, on her hands, and on her feet and on her legs, which tells me she wasn't on her back at any point. The assailant didn't stab her in the back. He didn't rumple her shirt. He didn't try to pull her into the position where she's at. Then the assailant, after literally watching her bleed out and crawl away for her life, he takes a full-size television set, rips it off of this dresser, throws it on her body for whatever reason, and that includes, it looks like maybe a VCR or a DVD player that's on the floor next to her. And anything that is away from her body, away from her final resting point, she didn't move after that. She didn't move. But there are blood stains and shoe prints on a uh, wood floor that are a few feet away from her body. So the assailant had walked through blood at some point, deposited on the carpet, had enough left on his shoe to deposit it on this wood floor in a couple of places, walked over to the couch, left some blood stains on the couch, wiped the knife off back and forth, and seemed to step over her body. I, I mean, is it possible that, do you think this was a hit? Do you know, could somebody have hired a hitman to do this? You know, when you mentioned that the other day, I kind of shook my head and went, you know, that's a really gruesome, dangerous, thing for a hitman to do you know you want it quiet there are silencers for guns I, I i just cannot imagine a hitman being able to first of all be invited into this person's house uh, first of all second of all you know was she threatened with the knife and they went upstairs and and you know they allowed her to sit down and smoke a last cigarette i mean it just seems so hollywood it just seems off and and weird it, it just seems like an odd scenario for something like this, for a hitman to, to slice somebody's neck and then bother to wipe the knife off on, on a couch rather than just slitting her throat and leaving. This person walked over her body, walked around to the couch, wiped the knife off, then exited. Why would a hitman bother to do that? For the love of God. It, it just, it pings to me, somebody knew her. And there was a problem. I don't know what the beef was, what what this, what precipitated this. I, I don't know any other details about this this victim. I don't know anything about her relationships. I don't know anything about, um, you know, and this is certainly isn't victim blaming. Please don't take it that way. Mm -mm. But 
you know, any ex relationships, people that, that, um, had some kind of problem or issue or what the hell was going on. But to me, based on experience, it screams to me that it's somebody she knew. Yeah. Your exact quote actually to me was this is vicious and cruel. Yes, absolutely. Vicious and cruel without a doubt, vicious and cruel. I mean, this person, you have to understand based on the bloodstains I'm seeing in the shoe prints, whoever did this watched her die, watched her crawl away and die and didn't assail her on the, in the back anymore. Literally just watched her crawl away and expire there on the floor, five to eight feet from where the initial injury was inflicted, then threw a television on her. If that's not vicious and cruel, honey, I don't know what is. To me, it, that, that to me seems like somebody who's angry at her. Exactly. Yes, absolutely. 100%. It is anger. It's rage. It's rage. Why would a hitman bother to throw a television set onto a dead body or dying body? That, that's not something a quote unquote hitman would bother to do. They would do their job. They would leave. That's it. So here's a scenario that was brought up before. Um, is it possible she was sleeping on the couch? That's how the person got in, because we do know she never usually locked her door. So the person could have walked in while she's sleeping on the couch, and that spurt of blood by the ashtray is where the initial cut was. No. Um, and that's based on the arterial spurts on the door. The movement through the blood, it, there's feathering. We call it feathering, which is swipes with movement and the movement can show directionality in that blood pooling on the floor. And all of the movement suggests it started by the chair and moved toward the carpet rather than from the couch down. And frankly, there's not enough blood, even though there is a large stain on that one cushion, you would have arterial spurts on the back of the couch, on the bottom of the couch, more on the floor around where her body was. Um, it's no, that that does not make any sense to me as far as forensic bloodstain pattern analysis. No, no. And they said her vocal cords were were either fully cut or partially cut. I mean, yeah, yeah. She wasn't as soon as that cut went through her neck, she was silenced. All she was concentrating on. I mean, you can see her hands. It's a natural reaction to put your hand up to your neck. That's where the blood on all her sleeves came from, um, mostly her left hand. You know, you have the transfer staining on the bottoms of her feet and on her, her the front of her clothing. She's crawling to get away. She's crawling across the floor to get away. There's a very, very large arterial spurt on, on the floor, on the wood floor, to the left of where she would be crawling. And that's, that's just indicative of her being low to the floor when that occurred. And so one last thing before I reveal to you what has, okay. what has been deemed happened in this case, I just want to talk about the murder weapon. Um, this yep. was an eight by four, four inches deep, eight inches wide gash mm -hmm. that, like we said, nearly decapitated her. Yep. Um, there were two knives that I gave you in the crime scene photos. There is this charade knife, which is a three inch blade. And then yep. there's a the kitchen knife. I think they nine inch it. blade. It's it's a big butcher yeah. knife. Out of both of these weapons, I mean, do you think both could have made that cut? Yep. And the reason I say that is because of a victim that I had 
um, who was also nearly decapitated. Now, granted, it took him <laughs> it took him twelve cuts with a pocket knife to try to decapitate her. Um, she did have a very, very large wound on her back from one shoulder blade to the next. It was 18 inches long and three inches wide. And that was the knife being plunged into her back and drawn across while she ran away. Mm. Um, so yeah, the Schrade knife could have done it or the butcher knife could have done it. Either one of them is completely plausible. To be clear though, the knife is shorter than the wound. So the, the handle would have had to go in too. Yeah. Uh, yeah, for sure. Um, you know, when you cut someone's neck, you're not, you know, the, the, it, God, this is going to sound so crass, but it's not like you're plunging the knife in and sawing it back and forth. You literally plunge the knife in and pull it. Right. So when you're pulling it, is it possible that the entire blade and everything went completely back across her neck? Yeah. Is it more plausible that a nine inch blade would cause a four inch deep wound? Yeah. Yeah. I'd go along with that. Is there anything else you want to talk about before I tell you the convicting scenario? Uh, I think we pretty well, pretty well covered it. They didn't do any fluorescein or luminol to yes. find any additional shoe prints in that living room on the carpet or anything, did they? No, they're not. You have everything I have. I don't think there was even mention of luminol. Okay. Nope. Then other than that, no. Mm -mm. And I think the fingerprinting too was, I don't, they didn't even take, I don't even think they fingerprinted the TV that I remember. And that obviously the person picked up the TV. Wow. Yeah. Um, that, that entire television should have been collected. And along with the VCR and I mean, everything on the floor, anything around that primary crime scene from the kitchen back or from that small little kitchenette back really should have been put in evidence. The ashtrays, the blankets, the television, even the, the little baby stroller thing, because you don't know if that person, you know, if they stepped over her body, did they use that for balance? Um, the top of the dresser was the dresser collected. That should have been at least processed, if not completely collected. Yeah. And I think, you know, from reading the reports, it wasn't, um, and, you know, I gave you evidence photos and I mean, none of that stuff is in evidence. So, I mean, whether it was collected and thrown out, I mean, the current evidence that they have, it is not there. I mean, honestly, we would have, we would have taken all of this. We also would have cut the entire carpet. I mean, I'm being perfectly honest here. We would have taken, since there's evidence of possible shoe prints, you know, maybe you don't want to do it in that environment. You want to have a controlled environment that's dark to, to look for the shoe prints. We would have rolled it into brown paper and taken it down to our, our facility and, and actually done testing on it there. We would have taken that entire I, What was not taken is incredibly shocking to me. Y'all, I am so proud that this podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is licensed professional therapy at the tip of your finger. It's on a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional therapy done securely online. I use BetterHelp and I absolutely love it. There are no restrictions based on location or insurance, which I've had issues with so many times. It is nearly impossible to find therapy based on my insurance in New York City. And I'm sure you've had this issue too. But with BetterHelp, you do not have to worry about that. You log into your account at any time, you take their quiz, 
and they match you with a professional licensed therapist. It's that easy. And the person that's best for you might not be in your city. That's what's so great about doing this online. BetterHelp is more affordable than traditional offline therapy and financial aid is available. Get started on your mental health today. Do not wait. This is so important, y'all. I love BetterHelp. Try it out. Visit BetterHelp, that's H-E-L-P dot com slash Maggie, and join the over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. We have a special offer for Murder in Alliance listeners. You get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash Maggie. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Maggie. So here we have, this is a 26-year-old mom. Four of her children were home when this happened. What? Yeah, they were child, They were really young. Um, the oldest was six years old at the time. Oh my God. And him and a two-year-old were locked in their bedroom from the outside. And the baby was upstairs sleeping in the crib. And her youngest, you mentioned the crib downstairs in our previous conversation, looked maybe like it was holding the puppies. Her yeah. youngest child, the four-year-old, actually slept in that crib downstairs. Oh, my God. And he was actually free in the house. What? Um, yeah, so he did witness all of this. However, he is severely uh, mentally disabled. So he has never talked about what happened. Oh, my goodness. So what the police have said that this was her ex-boyfriend, who's the father of one of the kids, who she actually, by every single account, had a wonderful relationship with. They said that he hired this 18-year-old to murder her for $300. They got a confession from him in which he said that they were sitting on the couch and he pulled her hair and then slit her throat on the couch. She got up, walked to the door, turned around, asked him why, and then collapsed on the ground. Oh, no. I'm not buying that. No, no, no. Um, first of all, her voice box has been cut. She can't say anything. Second of all, ah. <sighs> uh, you know, I, I always use Occam's razor, which is all things being equal. The simplest explanation seems to be the right one. Um, that just doesn't seem plausible to me based on the bloodstains, based on the movement, based on what I'm seeing at this crime scene. That, that just, wow. Wow. So you're telling me she got up from the couch, walked over to the to the door turned around, around asked why, why and then collapsed and crawled to her final resting place nothing was mentioned about crawling or dragging in the past people have looked at this they thought they might have been drag marks you're the first to actually say crawling well the reason i say that is because of the the blood that's that's on the bottom of her foot is that possible that she walked through it i don't know but it's only on one foot so how does that happen um, I don't see the same type of pattern on the other foot. All I see is uh, possibly some some projected blood or spurt patterns on the bottom of her other foot. Mm -hmm. So how do you, how does that happen? Um, yeah, that's that's just. 
Um, the other thing is when the clothing that he was allegedly wearing this night was collected, yeah. there is no evidence of blood or anything, anything on it. Well, here's, here's another thing. If they're, if they're sitting on the couch and let's just go there, if they're sitting on the couch, how did this person cut her neck from left to right if they're sitting next to each other on the couch? So he's sitting on her left and yeah. he said he pulled her hair with his left arm, reached around with his right and then cut her left to right. Well, where's the, the rest of the blood on the couch? I mean, sure. Yeah. You look at the blood spurt on the, on the couch. Fine. You, you look at the not overturned ashtray. Okay, fine. But where's, where's the blood spurting on the back of the couch? If she's, if he's pulling her away, she's not leaning on the back of the couch anymore. So, you know, where, where's, where's the blood on the back of the couch? Where's the blood in the front of the couch that, that should be there? You have the spurting of blood on, on the floor by the other chair, you know, but I don't see any movement through that. I don't see any swipe marks through that uh, arterial spurt on the floor. The only movement that I see is, you know, you got the projected blood on the, on the window and then you have a collapse. The blood by the window is going down. Then you have a collapse on the floor. Then you have the movement, the swipe marks movement toward the carpet. So that just doesn't, that doesn't make sense to me. And the other thing is when they asked how the TV got on her, he said he tripped over the dresser and it fell. No, 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 it's too far away. It's just too far away. Um, you know, you've got the little baby scooter in between the dresser and her body. If you just, no, I tripped over the dresser. I mean, what? How does that even happen? You have a 40-pound television on top of a dresser. How does that topple over if it's not purposeful? To me, the cords were behind the dresser. When the TV was pulled off of it, it pulled the dresser forward with the TV. Right. I'm not saying that's what happened, but that's what I see. Well, and if he did trip over it, that would put him close to the sliding glass doors where she was spurting blood. And I... I just can't imagine he walked out of this crime scene with not an ounce of blood on him. Right. He was wearing a white jacket, no gloves. And so they didn't find him until July and the murder took place April 1st. So they had been out in the woods for a while. And the jacket, uh, yeah, I looked at that jacket. I didn't see any blood on it. Where did that come from? They found that hanging in a house. Well, how are they positive that that's the clothes that were being worn at the time of the crime? That's what he said he was wearing. That's what he said he was wearing. And okay. actually witnesses who saw him that night put him in a completely different outfit. He, and he doesn't remember where his shoes were. So they never found shoes to compare to the crime scene. But right. that shoe print is, I think the shoe print's a 10 and he actually wears a size 12. Okay. Which was never brought up. They, they didn't, you know, and again, at trial, they didn't have any kind of expert to do any of this. There's actually right. no physical evidence matching him to this crime scene at all. No. The only thing he was convicted on was his confession and, and that small did... knife. They found that knife in a sewage drain. Right. And it was covered with dirt and dust. Yeah. 
Um, and how did they come to find the knife? Did the kid tell him it was in there? Allegedly, he led them to the knife. Um, that that's wow. Yeah, that's a hell of a scenario. Because the first knife that they found was this kitchen knife that matches her set. And like I said, the the swipe on the pillow right. looks much more like the size of an eight-inch blade than a three-inch blade. Has anyone ever, is the pillowcase still in evidence? The pillowcase is in evidence. Has anyone ever done comparative photography or any kind of tool mark examination of those transfer patterns on the pillowcase with the potential murder weapons. No. That needs to be done. Okay. I also believe what needs to be done is if this young man is saying he was seated on the couch, um, you know, we have touch DNA capabilities now. They weren't around in 99 when this happened, but now we have touch DNA. Was this kid ever in her house before, ever in his life? very unclear if he was physically in the house. We know he had met her two times because her, he was friends with her boyfriend. Okay. Um, unclear if he's been inside the home. Well, you know, I would highly recommend touch DNA on a lot of these. I don't know if the TV is still in evidence. I don't know if any of the items around her body are still in evidence. Um, you know, back in 99, touch DNA wasn't a thing. Right. But it is now. And, you know, two skin cells is all you need to, to make, you know, an identification. It doesn't necessarily mean the person's the perpetrator. But if his DNA is not found on that couch covering, on that brown sheet, you know, that's evidence that he may not have been there. I, I hardly find it possible that someone could sit on a couch like that and, and not touch the area around the center of that sheet or not have touched that pillowcase to wipe the knife off. Right. The pillowcase, we've definitely wanted to touch DNA it because someone yeah. clearly folded it to wipe that knife. Yeah. It's, um, you know, it's either consistent with a front wipe and then a back wipe, or it's consistent with it being folded and pulled across the blade in one fell swoop. It's hard mm -hmm. to tell from the photographs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, so, you know, you mentioned partners, um, they never investigated anybody else but the boyfriend, but she was actually, um, a sex worker. Okay. Um, she would have lots of men over, including half of the police force. Oh, gosh. Um, so one, an officer is actually rumored to potentially be a, one of the father of her children. They don't know exactly who the fathers are of all of them. Only one child's been DNA tested. Has there never been a court order for, for DNA testing on, on paternity? No, who just the one that, that um, the boyfriend who's now in prison for this is he, only him. Okay. Her life, her sex life, not, you know, not, and again, like you said, not shaming, but that opens up a huge pool of people that were never, okay. ever looked into. Yeah, it does. It does. And, you know, this, we go back to vicious and cruel. Um, you have to go back to motivation and sort of a, the psychology of, of behind a crime like this. Who would have the motivation to do something like this? If, if the boyfriend hired this kid to do this, what was his motivation behind it? He didn't want to pay child support. I mean, what, what was the motivation? That was the motive they gave. However, he had $135,000 in a savings account. He had money, he had a job. And even the child support agent 
who the def- the prosecution brought on to testify that you know he was ordered to pay child support actually recalled herself for the defense to say actually what i saw in all these court proceedings you know was them having an amicable relationship he didn't care about paying child support like she actually asked the defense to recall her because she didn't like the way the prosecution was portraying this so that's the motive and this kid are there any yeah are there any court documents where she's gone back and requested an increase or anything anything no. like that okay that's okay that's interesting so the child support payments were forthcoming they never stopped there was never an issue with anything no. like that it had just started he just started paying in i think february and she's murdered march 31st she's got these three other children with unknown paternity so she's not going after anyone else for for child support, correct? Well, so the one father, alleged father, who certainly is the father of one of at least one of her five kids, um, was in prison at the time, which is also fascinating because he actually had a lot more motive to kill her. He was an incredibly angry person, multiple domestic, like he was known to abuse, beat her. Um, and he was in prison. So they said, oh, no, we don't we don't care about him. Meanwhile, the whole thing was alleged to be a murder for hire. So why couldn't right. he have hired somebody? Right. Exactly. Uh, yeah, that's, that's strange. No, we don't even have records of any interviews with him. Wow. Really? Yeah. They say they interviewed him, but we do not have any sort of record of that. So the net wasn't cast very wide at the, at the onset is what you're telling me. It was like this sort of honing in on one person. And that was just sort of this really narrow investigation that led to X, which led to Y, which led to the conclusion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, you need to go back and look at more people. You really need to go back and look at more people because the scenario you just gave me, you know. <laughs> well, here's my thing too. Did, yeah, but does it make any sense with the crime scene? No, it doesn't. No, and that's really. the thing. Let's say even this kid did do it. Let's say Joe did do it because- let's say he did do it and you know we don't find blood in his pants three months later because they've been out in the woods or the white shirt he allegedly did this and then walked four miles down a main road the main street this is a four-lane highway with you know strip malls all down it back to the hotel he was allegedly being put up in for this hit the comfort inn yes is he leaving this crime scene not covered in blood? Probably not. There would be some blood. I mean, I don't know, you know, giving the scenario that I gave you, whoever did this stood behind her and then watched, you know, is that correct? I don't, I don't know based on the evidence. That's, that's what I see based on experience. So there would be some blood, maybe not coated, but certainly um, the shoes. I mean, that's a huge deal is, is why, were these shoes never recovered or searched for or found? Or if they get a confession from this kid, how remember what he did with a pair of bloody shoes? The shoes tell everything. They, there's bloody shoe prints all over that carpet, bloody shoe prints on the wood. They were, they were soaked. And, and you're going to find minute traces of blood in the tread. Where'd they go? That's a huge forensic link that's missing for me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. 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 I'm, I'm kind of blown away right now. Um, it's really sad. 
to me that this woman died in such a horrible, horrible way. And, you know, like you said, nobody gave a shit enough to do the job appropriately and get the evidence that it would take to get the right person who, who did this. And, you know, that's our whole job. My whole job is to come up with the answers that, that points to the correct person. You know, my worst nightmare is putting an innocent person behind bars. Um, that's any worst nightmare. That's worse than letting a suspect go as far as I'm concerned. Um, so that, that's really, that's uh, really awful to hear this. Well, and they're so flippant. We talked to one of the lead detectives recently and, you know, he didn't want to talk about anything, but, um, he basically said, you know what, if he's innocent, I don't fucking give a shit. Let him out. They, they don't, that's the whole point. They did not care. They don't care now. If there's an innocent person in prison, they didn't care then who they were locking up. Why? I see. That's the part that, you know, as a retired cop and as, as just an empathetic person, <laughs> I don't understand any mentality where, where somebody just wouldn't give a shit about another human being. I, 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 I cannot personally fathom that. I don't care what somebody does for a living. You, you know, you can be a drug dealer. You can be a, a prostitute. You can do these things that maybe I don't agree with on the surface as far as social mores and norms doesn't matter. You're, you've been murdered. My job is to find the answers. My job isn't to judge you as a person. And that, that's really heartbreaking. It's really heartbreaking to hear that. Yeah. I'm sorry. That's terrible. I, I really hope that somebody, you, um, whoever you're working with, will go back and get court orders to have this, these items retested to f- maybe find forensic links to the perpetrator, to the real perpetrator. If it's not this this person in prison, um, you know, the answers need to be found, and the appropriate person needs to be put in prison for this. Well, Karen, I really, really appreciate this. This has been incredibly eye-opening. Um, you know, listeners so far haven't really gone in detail with all of the evidence and not evidence that was collected. Um, so I appreciate you going through this with us. You're very welcome. And, and thanks for trusting me. And um, I, I, I truly hope that this, that this works out in the right way eventually. It needs to. Thanks again to Karen Smith for her help on this case. And be sure to check out her podcast, Shattered Souls, A Forensic Detective's Diary, wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up next time on Murder in Alliance. One person, one person to crack this case, it's Leach. Leach is the guy. Do you know where Detective Leach is? Somewhere in Maryland. Um, He refused to give me his address. Why is that funny? Because he didn't want to be subpoenaed. You know, it was like they twisted my words around and just went right after my brother. Yeah. They find David Thorne didn't mastermind this. Let him out. I don't give a shit. Couldn't prove it. She wanted to know if I knew how much it cost to bump somebody off. It sounded as though she already had the answer. Y'all, if you like this show, please consider joining the Unjust and Unsolved Patreon. It shows how much you care and helps us continue to tell these stories. 
Plus, you get some awesome bonus episodes, Q&As, and events as a thank you. And please, please rate and review. The more reviews, the more attention, and the more likely we're going to get tips and leads and the right ears will be reached. Murder in Alliance is produced and reported by me, Maggie Freeling, with editorial consulting from Amber Hunt. Aaron Case is our legal intern, and Bob Mallory is our engineering assistant. For more information and resources, go to murderinalliance.com. You can find Murder in Alliance on Twitter and Instagram at murder underscore alliance and join the discussion on Facebook at Unjust and Unsolved Podcast Discussion Group. Murder in Alliance is a production of the Obsessed Network. You can find all their shows at obsessednetwork.com. <laughs>